Hi everyone, welcome back to On Track Off Course. I hope you've all had a good week. Thank, I just want to say thank you for the incredible response to the podcast so far. It's been brilliant and I hope that this podcast is highlighting the services that are available to everyone from Racing Welfare. This week we're focusing on trainers and particularly looking at the specific stresses that they're faced with and this was something that we really wanted to look at following some research done by our Director of Welfare, Simone Sear. Yeah, Simone did a big research piece on trainers a couple of years ago now and into the different pressures and sort of stresses that there are on trainers and so for us it's quite interesting to hear from two trainers, Joe Davis and Rafe Beckett, about the differing pressures on those in a small yard and those in a larger yard. Yeah, sort of two ends of the spectrum, aren't they, in the training industry? Yeah, but also they're two very honest (laughs) trainers. You can always count on both of them to tell us exactly how they feel, which which is great. And obviously this is a fascinating topic for both of us actually having worked in yards and you, Lauren, especially because you've trained before point to pointers. Yeah, so for about 15 years I had my own business training point to pointers doing some pre-training and spelling um so whilst not quite on the same level as someone like Rafe Beckett who we're going to talk to later um I can completely understand the relentlessness of the job it was absolutely 24 7 365 come what may um and that is really tough to deal with especially once you start having a family and um I think this is going to be a really beneficial episode yeah definitely I see it with um, my father-in-law John Scargill trains in Newmarket as well and like you say there's never a holiday there's never a day off it is as they said in our as we found in our mental health research as well that it is a lifestyle rather than a job isn't it you have to be married to the job yeah and um I think everyone accepts that it's a real passion but um, at the same time, that doesn't mean we can't provide some support when that stress starts to have an effect on your well-being. Obviously, there is that support there for trainers through racing welfare. And while we're talking about well-being and trainers, we're going to hear from Michael Caulfield today as well. He's a sports psychologist who was so inspiring and motivational, wasn't he, when he came to talk to us? He really was. So let's hear from our first guest. Fire away. So we're now joined by National Hunt trainer Joe Davis. Thanks so much for joining us, Joe. You're very welcome. Can you just tell us a little bit, first of all, about your yard, the size of it, how many horses you have in training, how many staff you employ? And you've got a business on the side as well now. Well, yeah. yeah. Um, at the moment, we've probably got, we've got 17 in total, but they've been ponies, a couple of retired horses. Uh, myself and Tracy works for me, work for me on and off the We've been friends for about 18 years. Um, we ride probably six each a day. And then I have Nick Mack, we call her, um, on the ground. She's been with me three years now. And her son, Tish, just come on as an apprentice on the ground. Um, so we've got a great team. I am so lucky with my staff, I can't tell you. I really appreciate them. Um, and, yeah, it's just really, after everything we've been through health-wise with the horses and moving yards, it's 
I actually enjoy going back out there at the moment and go every morning. I don't mind getting out of bed. You know, we'll see when they run if they're as good as I hope they are. But you never know till they get to the track. Make fools of you all the time. But <laughs> yeah, I think um, and we, we're having a gallop put in. I'm, I'm I'm incredibly lucky to be given the chance to be here. Mrs. Brown that owns the property. She asked me probably four times over the years to come here because it had been empty since she did it up. And I kept saying, no, oh my God, it's too big. I wasn't a good enough trainer to go there. And it got so bad at our previous yard in East Garston that it was either give up or give it one more chance and, and try. You wrote a blog probably a few months ago now. Um, and it was about a horse who had been working really well at home yeah. and then she disappointed at the races. Oh, you said in your blog that you felt shame, disappointment and disbelief. What is it as a trainer that leads to those sort of emotions in you? I think it's, for me, it was a culmination of probably six years of hell, you know, because we, we, and you, you get to a point, we've worked it out now that where we were before at certain times of the year, they were going to be sick. But every year that happened, it was, oh, well, we have a new horse in, it's brought a virus or, you know, it was always, there was always something that we thought was causing it to actually finally realise it was the environment, it was what was happening. And, you know, you think you're on top of it or you try and make it better and you can't make it better. So when, you know, to have moved and I started running them from the new yard and to have thought you'd put all the legwork, the groundwork, you'd done all the schooling, you'd, you thought you'd covered every base and then for it, you know, because I was so low anyway and so lacking in confidence and massively, completely, I felt utterly, you know, like an imposter and I shouldn't be doing. It doesn't matter how many winners you've trained in the past or how many horses you've got to win that should never have won. That's all gone. The only thing that matters is that day when you're running that horse. And then, it, it, you know, one of the owners, well, that was embarrassing, wasn't it? And you think, oh, and that just summed everything up. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's yeah. shame of, but you know, you know, and, and it's not using the woman card, but they, those sort of people, those sort of owners feel happier with male trainers. You do have that stigma attached. On, and I don't care what anybody says, it's still out there. So when you're A, lacking massively confidence, um, don't know which way's up, you think you're doing a really good job and it all goes wrong, it's like, it shouldn't be happening. I've moved. I've changed everything. It, it, it should have come right. So it's very hard to keep picking yourself up. Your staff, who are fantastically loyal and work so hard, and you feel like you're letting them down constantly. You know, mm -hmm. it's you know. And as I say, you're only as good as how you are going at that particular moment in time. And yeah. so, what made you write that blog? Was it that all these emotions had come to a head, and you felt it would help to kind of get it all out there? What kind of motivated you to write the blog? Well, I had, um, so I see a sports psychologist called Phil Johnson. He's absolutely brilliant. And he does brain spotting, which is uh, it's hard to explain, but basically you try and form new pathways. So when you have a traumatic experience and whatever that traumatic experience is, you're constantly reinforcing the pathways to it by remembering it. You know, every time I shut my eyes, I could see that horse behaving just and completely out of character and you do you hold that emotion you know you don't let it go and it made me realize how many people out there will go through the same thing it was amazing yeah. how i had a, a few emails actually quietly from other trainers saying 
God, that could have been me. Thank you so much for writing that. It made me realise I'm not alone. Why do you think more trainers don't speak out like you have about the mental health side of training? I don't... Because we don't want to be seen as a failure, do you know what I mean? It's an incredibly hard industry. And it's incredibly tough. You know, as I say, everybody sits in judgment. doesn't matter what you do. If you get a horse to win, it should have won. You know, if the horse gets beat, you can't train. Um, you know, so if it, you can't, it's very, very tough. I've had owners say to me, and they think they're being nice by saying, oh, my mate, bet shop says, don't worry, you have that horse with her. But I, I like, you know, I love having a horse with you. And you don't realise the impact those sort of things that you hear have on your, you know, it's sort of like you don't absorb it until you suddenly realise your confidence is getting lower and lower and lower. And I think it just... I just think we don't want to admit that we struggle because what, what if we admit we struggle and then our owners don't have faith in us and take mm. the horses away? We probably work harder and give more care as small trainers, no disrespect to the big boys, but more individual care to try and get that really average horse to win. Could you just explain a bit about your day-to-day, how much physical work you actually put into training? Because I think a lot of people from outside the industry probably don't understand exactly the hours and the physical effort that goes into it it's not just the physical okay my day would start i get up at half five make myself a smoothie because i'm a bit older now and i can't exist on nothing (laughs) (laughs) i have my smoothie and my coffee gotta have the coffee take the dogs out i'll go out before anyone gets in and just check around my horses and say good morning to them and and you know then start feeding my guys come in at half six and start feeding we start mucking out, I'll still muck out, and then we start tacking up. So I might ride four, six in the morning. At the moment, because our gallop's not done, we're driving two lots, 20 minutes each way, galloping. So I might not finish in the yard till half one. Then I've got to try and catch up with things in the office. Then I have to go and pick my daughter up in because she's still at school where we used to live. So that's half an hour each way. Um, then I'll do evening stables. Um, you know, then daughter comes home we try and do pony stuff then cook dinner or my partner's a builder and he's working flat out as well we don't have any family around us um particularly and you just got to get on with it would you say that sort of relentless schedule is the worst stressor on a trainer or are there others for me personally the health of the horses obviously was the biggest issue i had to deal with and Mm. You know, even I had vets pulling their hair out and nobody could work out what's going on. And then you'd have people say, oh, your horses are useless. Why do you, you know, it's just them. Or, oh, why don't you run your horses? You can't leave them in the box because they're not right. You've talked very openly about your mental health. And in that blog, you, you said you have suffered with, with your mental health and you'd grown yeah. up around depression. And one of the things you said, and one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you as well today, was that you'd seen a sports psychologist and you knew about racing welfare being out there for all staff in racing, but that you felt ashamed to contact racing welfare. What was it about racing welfare that sort of stirred that emotion of shame within you? I wouldn't say shame as much as, no, maybe shame's the wrong word. I'd say it's a, it's it's putting things in boxes, isn't it? It's, it's, for me, I needed to take myself out of the racing whole racing thing and I went to Phil because 
I researched what he did and, and you know, how it worked. Um, I mean, I've, I've tried various things over the years. My father was a, a massive depressive um, who, you know, was, you know, it, it runs in the family. And, you know, every so often we just all, I think all of us need a bit of help. Now I've said start to you guys um, for help and you've been fantastic, you know, and you've done a great job. And I think it's just, for me, I didn't like the thought of ringing somebody who worked in racing, regardless of the, the privacy and confidentiality. In my, my head, I wanted to be outside, away from racing, to talk to somebody. Do you know what I mean? And it was more like I didn't want to be phoning. I know nobody in the office is going to go, oh, that, that bird on. Do you know what I mean? Has Joe Davis on the phone. You know that's not going to happen, but it doesn't, at the back of your mind, it's still too close. Simone Sear, who's our Director of Welfare, did a big research piece with trainers a couple of years ago. And I think what came out of that was that Racing Welfare recognises that there are certain barriers for trainers yeah. contacting Racing Welfare um, and reaching out for that support. And so something that's come out of it is that we're thinking about um, creating more bespoke services for trainers. Do you think that's something that would be beneficial to trainers? I probably would. I mean, don't forget, I'll pay Phil 150 quid for a session. Ouch. Oh, yeah. No, he's expensive. And it's expensive. So if you could go to something that was there as a resource, definitely. The other thing that you don't, as a trainer, A, you're, you're embarrassed and you don't want people to think you need help. And B, a lot of it is financial pressure. A lot of it is health resources, is having enough owners in. So you you do tend to think you can't possibly make that all better by talking to someone because it's material type things. But, but. About, <laughs> by talking to someone, you can make the material things better because you approach it with a better attitude. What, at what point do you recognise when you need to reach out for support? I was getting, um, I wasn't sleeping, um, I was grinding my teeth, really, and you know, normally I, you wouldn't meet, with all, what you see is what you get, you wouldn't meet anybody who was more level most of the time, who could always find a joke and always laugh at a bad situation, but you forget that it's cumulative, isn't it, as my mate Deb says, it's like a stress bucket, and it gets mm. more and more full to the mm. point where it's overflowing, and you find yourself sort of getting a little bit anxious I don't suffer from anxiety but you know all of a sudden I was getting racing heart and you know every time I shut my eyes I was you know seeing things that like that there something that I just focusing on that seeing where it all went wrong and you know and you think oh, this isn't me you know and I, I sort of noticed and I realized I was getting snappy and, and edgy with my family and I'm like no stop now you know and then talking to Phil it makes so much sense and he really, you know, it's hard, I tell you. <laughs> if anyone told you holding your finger up and shutting one eye, it was going to make you sweat and, and retch, and it was horrible. But it worked. So that works for me. Sitting talking to somebody, like it's like, it would never work because I understand a lot more. I, I understand triggers. I understand why people behave the way they do. Mm. It doesn't make it better. But to do something physically to, you know, help yourself, that works. How do you avoid burnout? How do you look after your own well-being? You can't. I, I, I don't know. I've reached burnout. And, and that's probably what spiraled, set my just ever-decreasing mental health this summer. Um, like, just complete and utter exhaustion. 
and we're very, I'm very lucky. We don't go out. We don't really socialise even before COVID, and we have good friends, but you know we don't buy nice things particularly. But we go skiing. So Greg and I love our skiing. We usually go twice a year, and that is just the break that I I look forward to and I need. A complete change away from horses and. The only thing I don't worry about the horses doing because I'm trying to stay alive. Um, so, <laughs> you know, it's it's the only thing that I get a complete and utter break from that. You know, I like to read a lot. I enjoy reading. Um, that's I find that really therapeutic. Um, I don't mind the work. I don't mind the work when it's going well. Listen, I remember thinking when things turned around last spring and we started having winner, 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 winner. You know, everything, I'm like, it's so easy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we focus quite a lot on the negative, but obviously you love it. You love the horses. Stop looking over there and just start looking with what you've got in front of you. And yeah. how you look around and you think, I'm healthy. My family are healthy, touch wood. The little things. You've, and given, you've given us lots to think about and talk about today. So thank you for that. And before you go, you've got to do our quick fire five. Oh, okay. <laughs> Don't be afraid. I'm very afraid now. <laughs> okay, Joe, fill in the blank. I am happiest when? Riding. When I, fe- when I am feeling overwhelmed, I... Just sit and meditate. My one top tip for looking after your well-being is... Just switch off and stop. And can you give us something, a person, a book, a film, who's inspired you recently? I suppose, I tell you what, um, Mark Todd, because we're using his gallops now. And yeah. I was when I was a kid, he was my hero. So, yeah. Okay, our final question. Can you give us a horse to follow? The big in, my boy. The beginning he finished second in his first bumper oh, I didn't hate it I'd be I think he's a little bit brain damaged if I'm honest it's just like 10 yards past the line he's like oh we could have won that but then he, he'd been quite ill and really under the weather the virus but touch wood I think he's yeah he feels amazing so let's hope he doesn't let me down but yeah brilliant thank you so much Joe no So we're joined now by Michael Caulfield, who is a sports psychologist. Hi, Michael. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. How are you all today? Good, we're good. You. How are you? I'm, I'm, I'm very well. I'm, I'm speaking to you from a football club um, in, in the London area. So I've been watching athletes train and prepare all morning full of vigour and health and life. So it always keeps me on my toes and puts me in the best possible shape. So uh, I'm looking forward to talking to you. Likewise. And can you just tell us then a little bit about what you do and your work and any work that you've done with trainers in, in particular? I think if I can do it in 30 seconds, I used to work for trainers eons ago. And so I cut my, I cut my teeth in horse racing and realised then what a, what a difficult profession it was. I then worked for the, the PJA for many years and that might want a few trainers to, to, to breathe fire at me. But I also understand the pressures they go through because if, if I'm speaking to you today from a football club, I think one of the tricks in football is so much of uh, the outcome and your life is out of your control. 
because you want to control everything from the player's health, their well-being, their performance, everything about them you want, you want to affect, but you can't. And I've always thought in sport, there are two jobs which, prevent, which present the biggest challenges. One is running a football side or any sports side because there's so much out of your control. The other one is being a racehorse trainer because you can do everything completely and utterly perfectly right to the point of beautiful perfection, and yet it might still go horribly wrong. And that doesn't happen in every walk of life, but it does in sport, and it particularly does in horse racing, and it particularly does as a trainer, because you can do, as I say, you can, you can do everything so right, and yet the outcome can be utterly crushing. And that's why I think it's, it's, it presents a huge challenge uh, to being a racehorse trainer, particularly now. And how do you think that manifests in trainers, in their mental health? It's very simple language. It beats you up because you start doubting yourself. You start questioning everything. You start raging at why it's not going right for you when you seem to be doing everything correctly in the first place. So I think that it has the danger to completely knock you over because you think you must be doing something wrong, but actually you're probably not. It's just that at times it goes horribly against you from illnesses to injuries uh, to results just not going your way. The ground conditions can change at the last minute. The race can be run against the way you wanted it to be. And it is out of your control. So if you're not careful uh, and you don't try and approach it in a very level manner, never getting too up and never getting too down, it, it can wreak havoc with your own personal well-being. And what strategies could trainers put into place or what could you sort of recommend to help support their health and well-being? I think what I've learned over the last 40 years working in the glorious sport that is horse racing, which has taught me everything, horse racing is still, I don't mean this in any way, is a criticism of a remarkable sport and resi resilient industry. It's a very insular sport. It tends to look inwards rather than outwards. And I suspect the trainers are so busy planning their day, their week, their month, their work list, their declarations, their runners, their jockeys, liaising with their owners, updating their website, doing their social media feed, liaising with their own family, being a husband, father, wife, mother, sister. It's exhausting uh, just to, hearing that. <laughs> yeah. But you tend to put your own well-being at the very bottom of the list. And at times I wish all of them, and myself, and all of you even, put it at the top of your list because we get so busy trying to control and affect everything else, we forget about ourselves. And I would ask trainers to look out at areas where perhaps they hadn't thought of for support, be it emotional support, be it mental support, be it health support whereby it can make them just more resilient through what will be an unbelievably testing winter. And I'm not being gloomy by saying that, but we're being told now, literally instructed, policed, to live a different life. And that's going to bring its own stress, stresses and pressures in the next six months. Do you think there's the trainers still see some stigma in approaching something yes, something like racing welfare for support yeah i wouldn't say almost approaching racing welfare and i think you've done an extraordinary job but i think the s word the stigma word is still is still alive and, and thriving because none of us none of us not even you would like to be seen as being weak or vulnerable or not good enough uh, and we think no I'll, I'll get through another day or i'll get through another week uh, and i think all those fears and worries and anxieties can suddenly attack just when you least want them so rather than wait for the attack, why not go on the attack yourself and look for areas of support you might not previously have done so because this is very, very different now and we need more support now, not less. And do you think that um, if trainers look after themselves and focus a bit more on their own health and well-being, that can feed down to the staff? Yes. In a simple word, yes. 
because I think that leadership has to be strong at the top and, that, and a good leader must be in control of their own emotions. And if you're tired, if you're worried, if you're angry, if you feel threatened, if you feel that you can't cope, you will pass that on, dare I say, more rapidly than this wretched virus which is wreaking havoc across the world at the moment. What would be your one best piece of advice to help us with our health and well-being? Manage your own energy as much as you manage your own prized, brilliant champion chaser, gold cup horse, derby favourite, or favourite for Royal Ascot, because you yourself, your energy is a limited resource. Manage it really carefully. Monitor it like you do your horse's health. Monitor it like you, you monitor your own finances and bank account and make sure that you put your own welfare and energy at the top of your list, not something you think of right at the very end of everything else you've done in life. Put yourself first for once rather than last because that's what people do. What do you do personally to manage your energy? Uh, I have at least an hour, if not two, if not more, uh, to myself every day or doing something I enjoy. That's mainly walking, sometimes mainly with a dog or two if I can. And I leave my phone miles away from me. So I've had a few days this week where I decided not to look at my phone between eight o'clock in the morning and six o'clock in the evening, just for two or three days. And it is the greatest thing I've done this year because we think we can't live without it, but I promise you we can. So give yourself time and space to get away from what you're thinking about, what you're worried about, and the simple, the simple remedies, I can assure anyone who has the kindness to listen to this podcast, simple basic remedies are always the best. They have not changed because there are no shortcuts to your own well-being. I'm delighted to say we're joined now by classic winning trainer Rafe Beckett. Rafe will take over as president of the National Trainers Federation in 2022. Thanks for joining us, Rafe. Pleasure. Um, first of all, can you give us a bit of a brief overview of the NTF um, and its role in racing and what's motivated you to get involved? Uh, as regards what's got motivated me to get involved, um, I felt that um, somebody had to do it. And um, I felt strongly that it's difficult to uh, complain about the various issues if you're not prepared to put the time in uh, to make them right. And so that's really why I started. And um, I suppose I originally I was on uh, a regional representative. And uh, um, once you start on that road, eventually you become president. So. Uh, whether you like it or not, um, and I'm, I'm glad to do it. You know, I'm glad to do it, and uh, uh, I feel strongly on certain issues. And so, um, but how does taking on the sort of extra pressure of that, combined with the pressure of training, does that take its toll? Well, as you know, I got plenty of flack at the beginning of lockdown. Luckily, I've a thick skin, so it didn't. Uh, that wasn't a, necessarily a, a a bad thing. I understand people's points of view. Everybody, there were emotive times, and people think differently. As regards the pressure, um, the executive of the NTF are very good, mm -hmm. and so you, you know the actual workload isn't necessarily more um, day to day, but um, you have to spend plenty of time um, um, in meetings and. Um, 
uh, rallying um, yeah. the troops, if you like. But um, no, I've never found it an onerous task. And you've always been, when I've spoke to you in the past, or when you've always been quite vocal about the well-being of your staff, and you've written blogs as well about working hours and housing and making sure that yeah. um, you look after the well-being of your staff. How could trainers apply that more to themselves? How could they look after their well-being better? As a trainer, I end up talking to lots of lots of different trainers and. You know, my concerns at the moment would be for the middle tier and to lower tier. There's only so many people who are actually making money in the sport as a trainer. And um, I think that that number has shrunk myself. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a tough gig. And I, I'm always, I digress slightly, but, uh, you know, we've had various assistants over the years and I've always encouraged them to uh, to make sure that the other side at 30 before they start training, because you're doing it a long time. That would always be my advice to those who work for me. Having started at 28, I'm well qualified <laughs> on the subject as well. Uh, but I think as regards people's uh, trainers' well-being, I think, you know, it's it's not a game to keep at for the sake of it. The trouble is, is that people always think, well, I only need one good horse and then things will turn around. You know, we've seen that this year with various trainers, you know, William Muir and Marcus Tregoning have had not breakthrough years because they broke through before, but, you know, they've had, you know, horses who've changed their careers and for the better. And people are always hoping that that will happen to them. Of course, that only happens to a tiny fraction of those who train horses. And, yeah. and you know, I remember a conversation I had the sales about two months ago with a guy who, you know, had been successful but had a shrinking string. And my uh, my advice would be all oh, change the dynamic of what you're doing. You know, if it's not, if you're done well, but you're not getting any more horses, then change it. Something's Don't carry or change. And whether that means giving up or change, training a different type of horse or mm -hmm. changing your business, then that would always be my advice. That doesn't really answer the welfare question. Training is a pressurised job and you've got to be a certain type of person. And I, this is not about me. I feel pressure the same as everybody, uh, uh, same as everybody does, you know, no greater or less. But you have to be a certain type of character to train horses as a United team, you know. You know father-in-law that has done it for a long time um so lauren's trained horses as you know lauren it's a it's a tough gig and you know i think I'll, um plenty of people come into it because they love training horses not because they want to run a business and the two things have to marry at some point for it to be a success you can't just be in it because you think you're a good trainer you've got to be able to manage all the other side of things as well absolutely I'm very lucky in that I have nothing to do with the financial side of our business. My wife does it all and or oversees it all. It's a very neat arrangement and there's no crossover. I am told what I can spend and what I can't spend and that <laughs> makes life very, very easy for everybody. Does that come into the personal side of your life with your wife as well? She tells you what you can and can't spend. <laughs> no, but in terms of the business, yes, that, uh, that definitely works. And our, our business was failing until she came along.
you know, I hadn't been only training three years when I met my wife, but you know, I was um, memorably, I had to, I didn't, I couldn't, my car got refused to coming up to the yearling sale that year. You know, I, she, uh, I was training winners, but the business wasn't going the right way, and she had to iron all of that, uh, all mm. of that out, and uh, it's made, made, uh, made it a very, uh, well, we've lasted. You know, she uh, sounds like a good woman. We've, well, we've lasted the course. You know, <laughs> anybody who trains for twenty years has done it for a, a lifetime, in my opinion. You know. Do you think the impact of COVID is going to be pretty tough on those middle lower tier trainers that you were talking about? Yeah, I do. I mean, you know, I think there'll be a number of people who won't renew their licenses in February, and I think that's tragic. And you know, the NTF will do all they can to make sure that those guys don't don't uh, hand in their license then and do carry on but um that would be my greatest fear i think you know we'll know a lot more in february because people tend to drift away rather than going i'm stopping now and you know mm. for me and he's an old friend of mine so i am slightly biased and, and worked for me as well ed vaughan i felt was the somebody called him the the proverbial canary in a, in a coal mine and and um, uh, it was a quote I used subsequently, and and he really is. You know, mm. there's a successful business who you know has trained stakes winners consistently over the last fifteen years. You know, had a solid business, but has decided that really, you know, that he he could carry on no longer. Now he'd been thinking about it for a while, but you know, the current situation, worldwide situation, forced his hand, and I'm sure he'll do very well in America. Um, because he's a fine horseman and yeah. uh, you know good businessman and people like ed but <clears throat> you know um i felt that uh he was the wake-up call for everybody in my opinion mm. everyone was quite shocked weren't they when yeah. that news yeah. came yeah so when you said earlier that you feel the pressures as well there tends to be you know people seem to say oh it's it's really hard for the small yards but there are different types of pressures for bigger yards and smaller yards um are there times when you ever feel overwhelmed mentally or physically and think oh, i can't do this anymore uh, <laughs> I, I i uh i don't know about overwhelmed i get i you know i don't have particularly uh you know the the the, the thing that worries me most is 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 uh staff that's the thing that worries me most, perhaps in the in the greater scheme of things. You know, that tends to be could be seasonal. Um, uh, you know, you tend to you tend to you know we 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 tend to we are well staffed, but I always worry at this time of year people tend to tend to change jobs at this time of years in flat yard, certainly. And uh, that was that is always my biggest concern. Is now are we gonna we've got to have enough men and girls for the start for, for the first of January, you know, and so I'm always very conscious of that. We, as you pointed out earlier, we major in how we how we treat our staff, um, but we're all it's constantly evolving, changing uh, dynamic in the sense that you know for years we didn't employ, for example, we had no part time staff for years. And that was that I was very conscious of that because I felt it upset the equilibrium. 
you know, working patterns have changed. And so we've had to evolve with that. So we now do, you know, we have weekend staff so that we can give more time off at the weekends. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're, we have more part-time riders than we ever did. We hardly ever had any for 15 years. And um, we have more of those now because, you know, the workplace has changed and that's what we've got to do. So um, I- I'm always very conscious of that. Um, uh, do I ever get overwhelmed? I kind of bog down is a better description. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, whether I've got to deal with buying, selling horses as we are at the moment today, uh, dealing with and trying to keep all our owners happy, keep all our people, staff happy. You know, we've got horses going to America, France this weekend, you know. All of that is it's quite relentless. It's is, is, is the right word. Talking about the relentlessness, so racing welfare are thinking about, and we talked with Joe Davis about it earlier in this episode. Thinking about creating a more bespoke service to, for trainers because of this shame and stigma f- of coming forward for mental health issues. Do you think that would be beneficial for trainers? It's a difficult one because I, you know I. I I don't ever talk to anybody who struggles in that sense, you know. I mean, you know, because people I, don't talk. I, people don't talk about. It. I mean, I talk. You know, I, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of my generation train. You know, I, as I mentioned Ed Vaughan, but you know, Tom Dascom. You know, I speak to a lot of. You know, they, those two work for me, but you know, Andrew Boarding and Richard Allen. Uh, you know, I'm on holiday with them, so you know, we have a lot of. Um, I have a lot of contemporaries who are very good friends as well. I've never, it's not something I ever talk to anybody about. So it's very difficult for Now's me to the say. the time, Ray. It's very difficult for me to say <laughs> you, whether it's worthwhile or not. Do you, you think know? that's the is- one of the main issues though? You, you are very vocal about the political side of mm. things, whether that's prize money mm. or resumption of racing. Mm. Do we need someone from the NTF to be more vocal on ending that stigma surrounding mental health or coming forward for any type of support, whether that be financial, physical? See, the the problem for me is that if you're a trainer and you suddenly say, well, I'm struggling mentally, <clears throat> you're not going to get sent any horses. And so the whole thing becomes so yeah. that you then mm. end up get, having to having to stop training because... You know, well, I'm not going to say appearing strong in front of your yeah, staff and exactly. for your owners exactly. because if someone thinks you're exactly. fragile, you know, really... as an employer, you can't afford to be fragile. Yeah. No, you know, you you can't afford to be. So, it's not something that I think that you you're going to find that trainers do speak up about. You know, they will go, they will come to the NTF or Racing Welfare, I hope, for help. But I think it's going you're. I think it's going to be difficult for any one individual to speak up about it. That's publicly. Really what it, yes, that's what yeah. I'm going to say. If we were more um, reassuring about the confidentiality side of things from yes. racing welfare, do you think we would be approached more? I think you probably would. And finally, you have two daughters. Yes. If they, if either of them wanted to take over, what would you be your advice to them? I'm constantly asked this to you. Oh. 
Um, <laughs> Tina yeah. thought she was being really original. <laughs> you are being original, but um, I'm 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 constantly. And my daughter is fifteen. My eldest daughter is fifteen and rides is riding out this morning. I hope. No, I know she will be. But you know, is she cut out for it? And perhaps I say, well, I'm, am I constantly asked? Do I constantly think about this? This is a better. That's a better way of putting it. Would I encourage them to do it? Truthfully. Encourage them to do whatever they wanted to do. Mm. Do I think she's cut out for it? Yes, yeah, she probably is cut out for it. At, right now, at 15, I think she probably is. I think it's harder for a girl. And I don't mean that, you know, Eve Johnson and Horton is, you know, a shining example. She's a very good trainer, you know, and she's a very old friend of mine. And, you know, I, I admire her hugely for what she's done and where she's and where she's got to and she has a very good business and took over a failing business as well let's face it i think from a business point of view absolutely i think uh, from a per on a personal level i think it's quite hard on girls because you know um the husband has to be to a greater because you live where your business is once you get married, your husband has to be living on top of the business. I think it's very hard and, you know, I, I, that would be my greatest concern for her rather than the actual running of the business. What's the best thing about being a trainer? It's a great life, you know, it's a great lifestyle in, 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 in many ways. You know, when you're training winners, people will people want to send you horses and when things are going well you know it's 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 uh there isn't a, there isn't a more satisfying or yeah satisfying way to earn a living um when you're training winners <laughs> uh but as we all know that's only ever temporary however where you're going you're still getting beaten four-fifths of the time by and large mm. you know 99 percent of trainers even you know uh, you know at the moment you know we only ever hit 20 percent once in 20 years you know and that's you have to live with that and you end up you deal with a lot of disappointed people a lot of the time, <laughs> even on the good days, yeah. you know. Um, but it's a, it's a, it's you, you, and you never, you never make a lot of money. And it, again, those trainers, you look around and the tra trainers that you really, that really last the test of time. Money was never why they did it, mm -hmm. you know. And I think as long as you marry those things up, you're not expected to make millions. Well, thank you for joining us. But before you go, you have to do our quick fire five. Okay. okay. Lauren. So, Rafe, fill in the blank. I am happiest when? When they work well. <laughs> Very honest. <laughs> um, second question, fill in the blank. When I'm feeling overwhelmed, I? When I'm overwhelmed, I sit down with a glass of red wine. And can you give us your one top tip for looking after your well-being? Don't take it too seriously. And fourth question, can you give us something, a book, a person, a film that's inspired you recently? 
I watched Moneyball the other night. I think that's uh, that's uh, as as if you're involved in any sport, that's surely a good way to go about it. And final question: Can you give us a horse to follow? Scope. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you to all our guests on today's episode. As we have discussed, training racehorses is a full-time, more than a full-time job. So we're really grateful to Joe and to Ray for giving up their time to talk to us. And to Michael Caulfield, who was just inspirational. I feel like we had our own sort of personal life coaching session after we'd spoken to him. <laughs> yeah, he gave us a little pep talk at the end, didn't he, about yeah. being mothers and working for a charity and um, giving all the time and taking time for ourselves. So yeah, he was especially motivational. It was um, interesting to hear from Joe and Rafe with two very different perspectives on training and the sport, but actually there were some common themes there about mental health and the fear of speaking out for fear of losing horses so it's it is interesting to see that that's something that spans across the training ranks yeah yeah definitely and I think um that's what Simone's research highlighted as well is that is one of the stresses on trainers is the reluctance to talk openly about mental health because there's that fear that their horses could be moved to another trainer down the road or the um, owners won't come to the trainers because they are seen to be fragile or weak and yeah we saw it today even just chatting to joe Mm. and rafe and hopefully there will be the more we talk about these issues the more open people will be and that there will start to be a change in attitude to actually seeing that it's not weak to come forward and yeah, actually it will benefit you. Yeah, and realising that race and welfare is there for trainers as well as stable staff and it's fully confidential. Yeah, I think that's something that we really need to reiterate, not just for trainers. This service is 100% confidential. Yeah. And... It was also interesting to hear Rafe talking about women's career development in the industry, which kind of ties back to that women in racing report mm. that we mentioned at the end of last week's episode. And again, a bit like the mental health training, hopefully the more we talk about it, the more we open those lines of communications, we can start to change those views on women in racing. Yeah, and that, and hopefully trainers will implement some of those recommendations that were in that report because there's quite a lot to help and support women who do decide to have families. Yeah, and hopefully as employers start to do that, they might see that that's beneficial for them as well as for their staff. Exactly, yeah. If anyone in racing or breeding or those retired from racing have been affected by any of today's issues... You can call us on 0800 6300 or you can visit the Racing Welfare website at racingwelfare.co.uk and, adv- and visit the advice pages. Yeah, and I'll, as always, put that in the show notes and I will include a link to the Women in Racing report as well in case you'd like to take a look at that. Take care of yourselves and we'll see you next time. See you then.